Back in 1517, the second largest collection of religious relics belonged to Frederick the Wise of Wittenberg. The largest collection, as you can imagine, was in the Vatican. The inventory of 1518 listed 17,443 items that included a thumb from St. Anne, a twig from Moses' burning bush, hay of the holy manger, and milk from the Virgin Mary. Money was paid in order to venerate these relics and thus escape years in purgatory. Folks, this is why the Reformation mattered, and it matters for us today. A diligent and pious person who rendered appropriate devotion to each of these relics could merit 1,902,202 years worth of penance. Once a year on All Saints Day, November 1st, Frederick would display these relics in the castle church and thousands of pilgrims would flood into Wittenberg to visit the relics and receive the spiritual graces they would offer. They'd pray that they would live like these venerated saints did. Now imagine the night before the grand opening of the relic display on October 31st and Martin Luther, a 34-year-old monk and professor, pressing through this crowd of pilgrims to post his 95 theses on the power and efficacy of indulgences on the doors of the same castle church that was filled with relics. Uh, With these, Luther changed the theological conversation of the church and brought forward the importance of repentance. That is the certainty that we are sinners, forgiven and rescued by Jesus Christ alone. Uh, We can take it for granted so often, but this is what we remember and celebrate on Reformation Day. The clarity of Christ Jesus alone for sinners is what we will remember and celebrate today as we work through this text. I owe a special appreciation to Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, who Chuck went on the tour uh, to Germany with for this, this information here. He's a Lutheran pastor in uh, Texas, a great man of God. But isn't it fascinating when we think about this event in 1517 that marks history books and how it it really changed the world. But we come to another momentous event in church history today. This one's about a reluctant prophet, a large fish and an evil city. And a message that God wants this reluctant prophet to deliver. Now we're going to pick up the story with Jonah having been given a call to Nineveh to call out against it that the evil they had done had risen to the Lord and he knows about the evil that is going on in Nineveh. But as you know, Jonah wasn't really into this call and he sought to flee from God's call and boarded a boat to Tarshish in the opposite direction as he said to flee the presence of God. God sent a storm that caused everyone on board to fear for their life. Jonah knew he was the reason, so he told him to throw him overboard. It was there in the raging sea that then became calm as he entered it. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish where God got Jonah's attention. He had a calling that was going to be fulfilled. It was there, though, that Jonah cried out that salvation belongs to the Lord. And boy, was he going to learn that lesson. We pick up right on the heels of this with Jonah having been vomited up on the dry land by this great fish that God had appointed for this very time. And it's where we begin today 
with our focus on why we preach God's word. We see here at the very beginning in verses one and two, why do we preach God's word? Because it's God's chosen method to save sinners. This is nothing earth shattering today, but it's a reminder as Chuck taught yesterday that Luther said, I just preached the word and it did all the work. And we have to remember that God's chosen method to save sinners is through the proclamation of the word of God. We see here in verse 1, though, this is the second time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The first time the word came to Jonah, he didn't listen. He went the opposite direction and went down into a ship to try to flee from this call on his life. But there's just something about being thrown into a raging storm and ending up in the belly of a well that seems to get one's attention. Now, we may have not physically been in the belly of a well or a, a raging storm at sea, but there's something about the darkness and the uncomfortableness and being in well way over our heads that gets our attention, does it not? And this is true for Jonah on that day. But I want us to make no mistake, Jonah knew what God was calling him to do, and it was not an easy calling. It was not an easy task in which he was being given. Because here's what Jonah was told to do after he cleans himself off with all the vomit of the fish. And here's God come to him a second time in his graciousness. He just professed that salvation belongs to the Lord. He says, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It hadn't changed. The calling hasn't changed. But we find here in, in the book of Jonah three times Nineveh is called a great city. And one time it's called an exceedingly great city. And Nineveh was made up of around, they think, about 120,000 people at the time. It was the capital of the Assyrians. Jerusalem, uh, the Jews at the time, maybe around 30,000 or less people. Jonah chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that Nineveh was an evil place. It was an evil place. And their evil had come up before God and God was well aware of all that was going on. The wicked city of Nineveh was known for cruel, cruelty, being very cruel towards their foreign captives. You didn't want to become a captive there, especially as a foreigner. They would sacrifice their own children to foreign gods. So imagine what they did to a foreigner. Nahum 3, verse 1, refers to Nineveh as the bloody city. Needless to say, this is a pretty ungodly place that you don't really look to go if you have your choice of places to visit. An ungodly, bloodthirsty city that does not know God, matter of fact, hates God. As Jonah has already shown, he would not have chosen this uh, task for himself. He would have chosen something completely opposite of what God has given him. I mean, as he's seen already, he's already run once from this. But what is fascinating is how the Lord chose to address the evil of the ungodly nation of Nineveh. He chose a prophet who had been disobedient already and knew he would be disobedient, God is sovereign, to preach to them. To take them a message from the king. And listen to what Jonah was to do. Call out against Nineveh with the message that I tell you. Now this is certainly not a call in which one should ignore. It's the calling of God upon a nation of people 
who is dead in their sins. The restraining hand of God is seemingly withdrawn from them and they are bloodthirsty, killing and sacrificing their own people, doing all kinds of atrocities to foreigners. This is not a call, though, in which the people of Nineveh will just kind of let the voicemail pick it up. We'll decide if we want to deal with this call at a later time on our own schedule. It's not that kind of call. This is a divine message from God himself and carries God's authority with him. As I've said oftentimes with Moses and others, Jonah had no editorial rights over the message. He couldn't change the line and fix it up and smooth off the rough edges and do something a little different. No, he was to hand deliver by crying out to the people the message that God gave him just as he received it. Through the humbling process, Jonah was beginning to hear the message clearly. As verse 3 tells us here, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. What a change for, no, for um, Jonah, excuse me. If we, if we work through this book in, in a progression, we would pick up on some of these cues, and I've preached it a long time ago. But here we hear that he arose and went, as opposed to Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, where it says he rose and fled. There's some writing in here there. Jonah's admitting his own change. And so these are great cues in which we pick up. But why was the change? Why was there a change in Jonah? As we said, he had come face to face with his own mortality in the belly of a great whale, great fish, crying out to salvation, being in the Lord alone. And so he knows that God's word carries a great authority with it. It carries great power, as we'll see. But because Jonah himself responded according to the word of God. He was humbled at some manner at this point because he knew God had chosen him for this task. Because again, think about it, why else would he go to an exceedingly great and evil city except the Lord would call and equip him to go. Jonah would take the three days journey, maybe some figure about a 60 mile walk as he's preparing himself to go there. As we look back to the Reformation and how the Word changed the world, we can celebrate and see that and think how awesome Luther and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli and others all throughout history were used in their time and their era by God. And praise God, we don't forget that. We can go back to Jonah even further and see how God is calling a man. We know how it's going to end, but we see God calling a man to go to an evil city, a pagan city, uh, a Gentile city. But we stop and think, well, look at our town today. People, people just don't come to church anymore. People don't want to hear that anymore. Does this really have implications for us today? And that's why it's a great reminder to come and to pause and revisit our history, but not to stay there because we got to remember that Yes, God still works in the same way in this generation. When we see a pagan and evil nation running amok and doing atrocities throughout the country here maybe or in the world, we must forget, number one, that God is sovereign even over that. It's hard for us to understand when we see so much suffering and bloodshed and evil in places that seems to be continual or even in our own borders here. 
But we have to remember that God, first off, is in control of all things. But secondly, we must not forget that God's message and methods have not changed. The cure for the Ninevites is, is the same cure for the West Virginians or the Muslims or the Jews or just the atheists or pagan in the world. It's the, the same need as to be made right before a holy God. That's the greatest need. And his methods and message has not changed. He chooses messengers and pastors to preach the word, to teach the word. So we have to remember that even when we see evil like Nineveh or in our America or beyond, it, it all still belongs to God. Now that's one of those secret things that we don't understand in its totality of, and how God can glean all the glory, but we know that He does because we've got His Word to stand on and we've seen Him be faithful for generations. So what does the church and the world need most? It's a message in which we heard three times yesterday. It's a message that I pray that we hear here every Sunday. It's what it always has been, the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners dead in their sins. Even those who are despicable, bloodthirsty, the most vile that we could think of, that is the message than which they need to hear. It is God's chosen message to save sinners and to sanctify us all the same. But you think, well, okay, that's God's method. But why else did Jonah preach? Why else do we preach? Look at verses four in the beginning of five. Why do we preach God's word? Because it comes with the power of God. That's one thing that's so neat about church history. And one of the things that was uh, so poignant in today's talk with Chuck in Psalm 46 and looking at what Luther did, he just chooses these these events in history to do great things. And he chooses the most unlikely candidates. Martin Luther was far from a perfect Christian. He just trusted in a perfect God. And he knew that the power was in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's why we preach. Man, I wish I could change you and, and myself in just a few strategies or willpower. But we know that's failure. But when the Holy Spirit changes a dead sinner to life, then and only then can people change. And that only comes through the power of God. So we know there's a distance here that Jonah, as he's cleaned up from the vomit and receives the message once again and decides to head to Nineveh, he began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. There it is. The message in which Jonah gave was five words in Hebrew and eight in English. I don't even want to hear y'all say, I wish y'all could do some of those up here once in a while. You know, when are you going to get to the five word one? But the bottom line is, I, did he say more? I don't know. I don't know and believe that he really did. I think God used him just heralding this message to bring because I think part of the message of Jonah is, is that God does the miraculous to save people. If you don't believe he can save people with five words, then you surely can't believe that a man spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. And if you can't believe that, then you surely can't believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior because he uses that to point to those who believed in that generation. So if you lose Jonah, you lose Jesus. And so I believe as God uses five words in the Hebrew to bring people to know him. And it wasn't, as we know, Jonah's joy of being there to preach 
It wasn't even the eloquence in which he spoke these five words. What made this special, the message special was God's word combined with God's power to God's glory alone. Jonah unashamedly cried out. He called out the message that God gave him. And that's what pastors and preachers and teachers need to do. We, we must cry out in a, in a world in which it wants to silence. Unashamedly, Jonah got to the point where he would just cry out. He walked in the middle of a bloodthirsty nation and cried out. He raised his voice. He, he didn't shrink back. He willingly gave the message that God told him to because he knew things weren't going to go well if he refused again. But sometimes it takes God to humble us and to bring us to the end of ourselves to remind us where the power belongs. Now, what was the focus of Jonah's message? It certainly wasn't a self-help or a self-esteem message. <laughs> he didn't say, listen, if y'all killers would just have a moment to listen to me, um, God's got a, a plan for you that's wonderful. Just, um, you know, stop killing each other. Um, every day can be a Friday. You know, come on, man. Hey, listen, don't shoot the messenger. I, I mean, I know what sounds crazy. Now, he didn't do any of that. He didn't come and say, well, you know, if you're going to reach Nineveh, you've you got to talk like their culture. You've got you to make it appropriate to them. I'm not saying that we don't take in, um, we don't take in, in our knowledge of who people are and what they do. But the message doesn't change. He didn't shrink back and say, well, we can't really preach this because Nineveh doesn't know God. God said, give the message. Uh, what was the focus is, is that God was going to destroy you. Hey, he didn't preach a message of, of, of really warm fuzzies. It was one of judgment. So how about this now? You know, you, you flee from the presence of God. Now, this is a prophet of God. He's no dumb-dumb. He, he flees from the presence of God, thinks he's going to go to the bottom of a ship and go the other way because he's going to get away from God. He ends up in the belly of a well. He takes an assignment, and the assignment is go preach judgment. Go preach judgment. Preach this. God is going to destroy you if you stay in your sinful, evil ways. Left to yourself, destruction is coming. Yet in 40 days, we don't, you know, that timing, that use of that language, maybe God gave them over that much time to, you know, in this country, this nation to, to make these changes. It's a challenge, is it not, in the culture in which we live? It's a challenge for me as a pastor to stand and for each of you to live and even the circles we live in is to not shrink back or be ashamed of this message. The good news of Jesus Christ is not good news unless the bad news is really bad. Yes, Christ is love, but if all we do is affirm people and where they're at, they'll never change. God loves you guys. He loves you. Okay, great. But it's different when you understand your destruction and your life is going to come to an end and you're going to stand before a holy God in judgment if you don't change and come to know the one true and living God. Because the truth is all of us left in our sin, this is the same outcome for us. One of the great messages yesterday was that the law of God shouldn't be something that we're ashamed of or to hide, even as Christians. It, it, it exposes us. It lays us low, does it not, before a holy God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can't even keep those two. 
And it should send us running to a Savior in need. It, it restrains society. So even as bad as Nineveh was, then they didn't realize that God's common grace was even restraining them from being total cannibals and barbarians and eliminating themselves. But then as a believer, it's a great word for us to hear on how to live by God's grace that we say, in light of this truth, I want to live for you. But man, God's law and his judgment first comes to us and should lay a smack dab on our face. And this is what the power of God's word does. I'll be honest, you know, I wish I could preach a message and would see those things immediately. Conversions and all this. But God doesn't see fit at this moment to this point to have done that. But we still trust that God is doing and working in his word in the ways in which he chooses. But God is... First and foremost, laying out before Jonah, as we've heard the importance of this this weekend, who you really are. You stand naked before a holy God. You think your rags and dirty robes are going to save you in your works. An amazing thing is, verse 5a, the people of Nineveh believe God. Now, we know chapter 4 brings a whole other issue with Jonah and his heart. He's mad about that. But at this point, we deal with the issue that this evil, bloodthirsty nation believed God through the preaching of five words in Hebrew that we're told. Imagine being sent right now to Gaza, the Middle East, with Israel and the Palestines, and the word Hamas is now part of our daily vocabulary. And I want you to take this message. You're going to go stand in the center of the town, and I want you to take this message. And I want you to look those Muslims in the face and say, judgment is coming if you don't come to know the living God. That was the assignment of Jonah as he stood before a bloodthirsty nation. Imagine if we were sent to modern-day Iraq or Syria or some of these other countries in the world or maybe some of our inner cities or other places where there's so much unrest and you walk into town and your only ammunition is the message of God and the message you must preach. And this is the amazing part of this story is that thousands repented of their sin and believed, we're told here. Who does Scripture tell us they believe? And, and this is what's so wonderful. This is what's so humbling for a, a, a pastor. I know Chuck feels this way as he's asked for prayer and we teach and is, what do they say? The people of Nineveh believe God. Jonah, you, you, you were just the mouthpiece. But God, in his strange ways, chooses to use men to bring people to know him. And that's why we preach the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. And even in a bloodthirsty nation like Nineveh, even in a, uh, a nation like Wittenberg and, and, and with, with um, Martin Luther and those many men and women who gave themselves, Elizabeth Elliot and those others who've gone down through church history and stood for things in the face of evil. Elizabeth Elliot would stay at the people in Ecuador and minister to the very ones that killed her husband. She'd be the first to tell you, though, she didn't do that because of her great love. It's because of the power of God on her life and it made her willing and able to love them. And there's stories like that through all of history that here's the great thing is we have the same power in our daily lives. We may not be in the middle of a jungle, the middle of a castle, or the middle of the Middle East. But God still has the same power and design for each of us to live under that. And Jonah was the instrument in which God used to speak for God with the power of God. 
Can you imagine the privilege that Jonah's had? This man had the privilege of being a part of some of the greatest events in history. He spent three days in a whale's body and then sees a whole nation converted through a pretty short sermon. Amazing what this man has seen. And only the power of God can do that. That's why we need to be in prayer and really believe that God and cry out that God would do this work in our land and in our world. That's why Reformation Sunday is a great reminder that we need not to lose hope or to seek other methods of ministry. God still uses you. As soon as men called to the ministry to preach the word of God because the power of the Lord is accomplished through the preaching of the word. It not only gives life to dead sinners, but it sustains each and every one of us too. That's why Chuck's big call to us was to these two words, law and gospel, to hear God's law and its beauty and, and its unbending glory that humbles us and the gospel that tells us how we can be right before a holy God and we take that out to the world. That is what they need and that's what we continue to need. But Jonah's not finished, is he? In the second part of five through verse eight, why do we preach God's word? Because it creates genuine repentance. I've alluded to this already. We can't change ourselves. We can't even work up faith within ourselves. It's all of a gift by God's grace to us. And so Nineveh responds to this message by calling for a fast and putting on sackcloth and, and ashes from the greatest of the men to the least of them, as we'll see the king down to the peasants. To the king, to the slaves, they were observing this fast. He, the king arises from his throne and removes his robe and covered himself with these sackcloth and ashes. I want you to think about that, that the word of God is so powerful that it can get a pagan evil king up off of his throne and onto his face. Along with the rest of a nation. The pride of a nation was being laid low in, in literal dust and ashes, in humility and, and repentance. This is the response before a holy God. Did we not see that with Isaiah, 3, Isaiah 6? Woe is me. Even when Peter recognizes who Christ is, he hits the deck. Because God is holy. We should be the most humble people and the most easily repentant people because it is all as a gift from God. That he's not treated us as our sins deserve. But I want you to pick up on some things here that took place. The king stood up. That's a sign of seriousness. He removed his royal robes. That is a sign of humility. He put on sackcloth, which is a coarse, abrasive fabric that is very uncomfortable, made of goat hair, as a sign of mourning. And he put on ashes, which was signifying or a sign of destruction or destitution excuse me and ruin a sign of repentance usually this is done in extreme cases in which god's wrath is pending over the people i think it was the right time don't you imagine that scene as we move into election season again and we're going to see ad nauseum these debates and imagine though at a scene of a presidential debate that all the would-be leaders or the kings and the leaders of nations announce there's a special broadcast. They're not going to debate tonight. They're going to put on sackcloth and ashes and they're laid out in humility before a holy God because they've realized who God is. And this is what's taking place. These men and women are humbly crying out to God. 
And the king, he, he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by his nobles. He said, let neither man nor beast nor herd or flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let him call out mightily to God. He was so worried. He made the, the horses fast. He made the animals fast. Like don't even get a drink or feed them. And I think if we got a grasp of who God is, it would change us in the same manner. The trifling things of this world fall in comparison. You, you don't even feed them because a holy God says he's going to destroy us. Cry out to him mightily. You can hear the animals crying out as maybe thirst and hunger set in and the people are crying out before a holy God. He's not chancing anything as they're all covered in sackcloth. You see, that's what genuine repentance does. It cuts to the heart. It, it, it eliminates the yeah buts, or if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have, or any of these self-justification. We're great lawyers, are we not? We can justify everything we've done. But what true biblical genuine repentance does, it allows us, as Luther says, to call a thing what it really is. And in this case, sin. Listen to the king. He said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Mm, it's amazing. How all of a sudden did this king realize what they were doing was evil and violence? Again, as the message yesterday, we talked about the law of God. It's written on our hearts and our conscience testify. But this is a conscience that's been enlightened to, by God to finally understand what you are doing is evil before God. That's the amazing work of God, is it not, on sinners who are dead in their sins. This type of awareness is not something, again, that we could work up in ourselves or debate someone into. The law, the gospel, the Holy Spirit alone exposes the heart. Let there be no mistake today that the response of Nineveh shows that biblical repentance is a gift of God, first and foremost. Calvin said, repentance follows faith and is also born of faith. I've taught on this before, and I think it's very helpful. The two parts of biblical repentance are contrition and faith. Contrition, recognizing we are sinners. We've sinned against the holy God. The law of God has laid me low. The call of judgment on me is right and deserving, and I need somewhere to hide. I've got to go somewhere or I'll die. Nineveh checks the boxes, does it not? But praise God, we don't have to live in sackcloth and ashes, wondering if it's enough. Because there's faith, a trust in Christ and his mercy. It's the gospel that lifts, lifts us up out of our sin and our ashes. It bears repeating today and forevermore that we don't create faith. Repentance or repentance in ourselves, it's all the work of God's grace to us. So often we think about the fruit of repentance, the mind of life that is changed due to God's word, and we want to follow him. That is right and accurate, but true biblical repentance starts with the contrition and faith, first of all, and then we follow in that, the fruit that will come. And this is what we see here before us. What a beautiful picture. But we close then with these last ones. Why do we preach God's word? Because it alone gives us hope for our sinfulness. Listen to what he says as the animals aren't drinking or eating. He's off his throne. He's in some goat hair and ashes. I mean, it's embarrassing. Who would do that if you were the king? And yet, when you stand before the king of kings, it changes your perspective. He says, who knows? 
God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's amazing he's already understood too that fierce anger is rightly directed to him in a five-word sermon. It's amazing when God turns on the lights how much understanding we have, is it not? And that we can understand today is to God alone be the glory. As he was understanding, they deserved every bit of the wrath. You see, but God's not just the God of judgment. We don't leave him there. We don't leave you in the sackcloth and ashes. I don't preach a message and I just leave you in the dust every week. Not only does God expose our sinfulness, it's that second word that we've talked about all weekend. It's the gospel, the hope that comes. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster and he did not do it. He did not do it. He did not destroy them. It's only in God's word where we hear that God is also a God of steadfast love and faithfulness and patience. How many times did we hear that this morning? You know, we read it and then we sung it. There was a part of you that was probably like, okay, we're, we're getting it here. But let's never forget when we laid in the ashes and the dust of our guilt of our sin that the steadfast love of God endures forever. And this is what was happening before the people of God. God relented. A dynamic connection between man's action and God's sovereignty. But God did not treat them as they deserved on that day. He foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. And he knew he could take a, a disobedient prophet and give him a message to preach. And the people would be converted on that day. It's mind-blowing. That the people would come to know the Lord. Let us be reminded, though as a people of God, that repentance is a joyous gift given to us by God. And it's to be a mark and a characteristic of the life of every believer. Uh, what would it be, a Reformation sermon if I didn't give a quote about Luther? And this is one of the best ones I think he, he gives. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he intended the entire life of believers should be repentance. All of the Christian life is repentance. Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners these aren't merely a one-time inaugural experience, but the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day and every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. Wow, what a word. What a word. There has never been a man, I think, I would put Luther up against anybody in history who tried to earn his salvation by works, the things that he did. And when he understood that the gospel is the free good news, of course it makes sense that every day of my life is one of repentance and coming back again to the finished work of Christ on my behalf. Where else are we going to hear the promise except preach that there is hope for our sinfulness? It's God's word that revives us and keeps us repentant. We know that Jesus in Matthew 12, 41 the people were asking for signs, were they not? And he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with greater generation, with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah's here. That's the good news on this Reformation Sunday. We got something greater than Martin Luther. We got something greater than Jonah. It's Christ Jesus, our Lord. The scripture in Matthew 12 testifies by Jesus himself that this was a real historical event that took place, but it pointed to something greater. It was Jesus Christ who is the word alone who saves us from our sins by the power of the word of God and keeps us able to call a thing what it is and to look to Christ and receive him for what he's done for us. 
Stephen Lawson said this, and I'll close with this statement. One God-called man, armed with one God-sent message, committed to one God-prescribed method of preaching, is always sufficient for any situation. 1517-2023, we preach the same Christ, we preach the same Word of God. That's why we continue to preach week after week, Sunday after Sunday. Let's pray.